I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? I'm really excited because we are back on World War II. We are heading towards the Eastern Front. Today we have with us David Stahl, who is a historian, author, and senior lecturer in the history um, in history at the University of New South Wales. He specialises in the Second World War. He's published quite a few books on the topic, including the Battle for Moscow, Operation Barbarossa, and his new book, which is due out at the end of the year, Soldiers of Barbarossa: Combat on the Eastern Front. Welcome, David. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, where are you at the moment, and how is lockdown? Uh, I'm in Canberra, Australia, and lockdown has been uh, a feature here too, although I have to say we have been lucky in global terms. I think we have a total of 7,000 cases in Australia and 100 deaths, and so by a lot of standards, it's not so bad. But like everywhere, my university is shut down and uh, we do everything online now. Um, but I have to say, as a, someone who works in German history with a lot of colleagues overseas, I'm more used to Zooms and Teams and all these other platforms that people use than some of my colleagues who are struggling with that. So so let's kick it off with a bit of background history. So could you give us a background overview of the relationship between the Soviet Union and Germany before the German invasion of the Soviet Union on the 22nd of June 1941? Yeah, it's probably a really good question to start off with. But, um, you know, I guess the latter part of the question, which talks about the 22nd of June, and everybody knows what is that, that's the invasion of the Soviet Union, almost makes it look like, well, that relationship, if people know not much about that, a communist, a fascist nation, must always have been sort of some fracturous disagreement. And that's actually not the case. I mean, if you take the long history... We really even see periods, and it's remarkable, there's a new book coming out with Oxford University Press talking about the relationship between the Soviets and the, and the Germans um, in the end of the 20s and the start of the 30s, and just how tight that relationship was and how important it is for the development of the Red Army and, 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 and what will become the Wehrmacht under Hitler. But of course, then things do change after that when Hitler gets involved and then the, the relationship becomes much more sour. And then I think, Elena, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have a podcast, don't you, on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact on History Hub? We do. So Swabon Widemski, if you guys go back to some of our earlier podcasts, he does talk about all of that. So if you need even more background history, but I would say one thing about this war, numbers matter. 
scale is 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 important and in order to understand this i think one of the the, the starting points is this isn't just oh you know germany fights in north africa and they also have a, a north african uh, sorry a north atlantic campaign and they have a an air war and they have you know it's not just one more element of the war it is the war if you were a german soldier more than likely you fought in the east and if you served anywhere else well frankly you you had a better war um and that's not any comment on uh, you know war isn't so bad in north Africa, not at all, but there is at least a Geneva Convention there. That's not the case in the East. This is different in a lot of different ways, not just in terms of scale, but in terms of however we might quantify ferocity. Um, and, and I guess that's the sort of stuff we'd be unpacking in this, uh, in this podcast. But I think as a starting point, people need to appreciate that. I mean, Rommel never commands more than three divisions. That's less than 50,000 men in North Africa. That's Germans. There are, of course, more with Italians. At the same time on the Eastern Front, we're talking in excess of 3 million German troops. That's 148 divisions. That matters. That's important. And yet when you quantify the amount of literature in the Anglo-American world versus, you know, any other aspect of Germany's war, and it's not to say that those other aspects aren't important. They absolutely are critical, in fact, to understanding how the war was won. At the same time, we do need to spend time talking about the East. You're selling me on this. Um, so why did Hitler decide to invade Russia? Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, there's sort of two periods there. So the back half of 1940 is very much Hitler's rationale is the context of a war that he's fighting against Great Britain. And what he ends up saying to people is, you know, he believes the reason why Churchill won't make any kind of peace deal with him is because their last hope is the remaining continental power, the Soviet Union. And if we eliminated that, then there'd be no reason for Britain to continue this war, which is kind of ironic in that, you know, by thinking that uh, they're holding out for the Soviet Union, we should invade the Soviet Union, essentially giving the British exactly what they would want. But the idea is, of course, this is going to be a very short campaign. And really everything in Operation Barbarossa is predicated on this idea. You know, it's it's in some ways people say not surprising because, you know, the, the, the French campaign was so quick and the Balkan campaign, Poland, Norway, all these places fell so quickly um, that, 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 that it seems that's a realistic prospect. At the same time, and I think this is maybe what we'll get more into and certainly what my histories have dealt with, is if you break down Operation Barbarossa from anything other than the most superficial analysis, it starts to become very clear. And indeed, it's in the German plans. What does staff do? What does a general staff do? They are busy with the details of a campaign. And in those documents, you already start to realise, hey, the warning signs of this thing not being a short, sharp, successful war are very clearly here. So things that you know, general staff officers measure. They can measure, okay, if we have this many men, this many horses, this many vehicles, how much fuel, how much um, resources does it require us to sustain this sized force deep into enemy territory? And the numbers just don't simply add up, which is, I think is a super interesting question then. How are these guys quick squaring circles? They, they are coming up against very real problems and it's their job to solve them. But time and again, in the, in the German general staff and principally Helder, who's the chief of the army general staff, these things are being sort of, 
you know, squared. And I think part of the rationale for where that squaring is, is partly ideology. We, we have to think about something I refer to as national socialist military thinking. There is a degree of this. Um, and uh, yeah, I won't get ahead of myself or, or go into these sort of theories and, and so on. But, um, but I think it's, it's important for us to understand that because people often look at the German army and say, well, they're, they're just like our generals, only of course they have different uniforms and different uh, you know, um, traditions and so on. But essentially they're the same sort of people. And I think there's two problems with that. First of all, we can never separate the military, the conventional war from the war of annihilation that runs in parallel. These guys are in both camps. They're fighting a conventional war and they're also very much involved in this war of annihilation. Don't believe the memoirs that they write post-war, which say, oh, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't even know what was going on or we never passed on the Commissar order. They absolutely do. Um, so that's one element of it. But even when you just look at, I mean, I'm very much an operational historian. And even when you just look at the plan, separate from all of that, you start to realize there are very real problems here at the operational level. And to the extent that they're aware of it, they are not dealing with it. And I think that's where we have to begin to ask these questions. Okay, this is so clear. I can see it. The guy who's writing the reports for the next chain of command is spelling out the problems. And you would think any reasonable commander would have to then provide explanations. And where you can find paperwork where they're sending back orders, they're basically saying to them, yep, yeah, you're going to have to do it anyway. We don't have the fuel. There's no way. We don't have any more men. We don't have any vehicles. What do you want me to do? I can't make it happen. But that's, I think, again, where you start to begin to understand what is national socialist military thinking? What is this national socialist ethos in the German army? It doesn't just facilitate atrocities. It also facilitates decision making based on ideas like the primacy of will. What does Hitler talk about when he gives his big long speeches? Me, me, me. I did this for Germany. I did that. And in, in a sense, it's not new thinking in the German army. I think it's grafting on previous ideas ideas from the 19th century Siegesville, so the, the, the will to victory or, or Kampfgeist, you know, fighting spirit and all these ideas, those ideas kind of already existed in the German military tradition, you know, a very aggressive army. But like a lot of things on national, in national socialism, these things get put on steroids. Like they are, they are, it's just so massively overemphasized, and that's exactly Hitler. He thinks he changed Germany himself, right? It's not circumstances, it's no depression, it's all about him. And in some ways, this is very much what you start to see commanders. If a commander can't achieve his objective, don't talk to me about what you don't have. Find me the, com the commander who's gonna say, yes, I can do this. And that's what German propaganda celebrates. You start to realize when you look at these, you know, various propaganda magazines and what do they put in the Wachenschau and so on, they're emphasizing these stories of, you know, 17 German soldiers held the bridge for three days and amazing feats of uh, achievement. Some of them are real, but there's also a huge cost in this. Very good answer. I like that. But Actually, I, I think you asked about the decision to invade the Soviet Union and I went way off into other things. But You, you know, did, you did. Welcome it's to history. It's fine. Yeah. We, don't mind, we yeah. don't mind tangents. We really don't mind tangents because it gives us a better... I mean, I didn't even know half of that. So... You just educated me in something, which is great. And I love to be educated. So don't worry about it. it if is you give me two more sentences, I will do one more thing. I didn't. I said the first Go half is basically Great Britain, because so it's a strategic calculus. And the second half, the second, sorry, this is what I didn't mention, is, is the 1941 component up until the 22nd of June. And in that, Hitler is emphasizing much more ideological factors. So there's sort of this two elements. There we go, in a nutshell. Did he originally plan on May rather than June? 
Yeah, there was talk about um, going earlier than June. Um, and for a long time, people would say, this is the book sort of of the 70s and 80s, the analysis always was, oh, what the Balkan campaign delayed operations. And actually, it's not the case. The, the, the thaw comes late in 1941. So there's two periods of a, of a sort of a Soviet year where you have the, the so-called, I think, Ratsputitsa. I'm probably not saying that correctly, but it's the time without roads. And that comes, of course, in October when the rains come. And of course, you get these you know, bottomless sort of um, uh, morasses that even on the roads, because most of the roads aren't sealed, means movement is very, very difficult. But of course, when all that rains, uh, sorry, all that uh, snow melts in the in the you know in the spring, um, there's a period where everything's again sort of sodden and you can't move well over that. So uh, the Germans are very much aware of this and they're still very conscious of the fact that they're going to have to cross a lot of streams and rivers as they move through the east, and they recognise that a lot of these are still very um, you know there's still a lot of water flowing through them. Um, and they're very concerned that this would delay things. So the, the date is pushed back. Also, there is um, a, a lot that people don't know about the German army, the Ostheer, the Eastern army that they're building. Um, there's a real race to that 22nd of June for a lot of these divisions, especially the newer Panzer divisions, to be ready. Um, and a lot of them actually aren't ready. They're sort of hybrid you know, patchwork divisions for a whole host of reasons, mainly because Germany doesn't also have the, the motorization to properly resource them, but they're training men and, and some of them are provisionally operational by the time they launch. So Germany is using every week it possibly can for obviously the, the, the reasons to do with the weather, but they're also struggling to get this Ostheer together and, and, and build up ready for its objectives. I need to know this. I mean, the military strength is really important. So tell us a bit about the military strength of Germany and the Soviet Union at the time of the invasion. Yeah, it's also a really good question um, because we kind of look at, you know, we, we have these big numbers, right? The size of the Soviet army, but in the Western military districts, there's about 2.7 million men uh, for the Red Army. And these are the forces that the Germans will initially meet. But the actual Red Army is larger. I think we're in five point something million if you take the Red Army as it stands around the other military districts. But the other confusing thing is the mobilization base for the Red Army. So there's about 14 men, million men mobilization bases because people have served and, and nominally have military training. And in a crisis, as the Soviet Union will be confronted with, they've got all of these cadres that they can, they can raise uh, in order to engage in probably the most remarkable feat of force generation that any nation has ever undergone. It's why you can have what are remarkable encirclements from the German side. You know, it's Smolensk and it's Kiev and, um, you know, Vyazma and Bryansk, you see constant uh, encirclements through 1941. And that tells you one story. It makes it look like, well, the Germans, they're really doing very well. And, and a lot of the earlier books, I mean, when I say earlier books, even into the 90s, that was the, the common representation of Barbarossa. If there's a standard measure for success in military campaigns, it's which side is advancing, clearly the Germans, seizing a huge amount of land. And the other big factor is, well, they're winning these huge battles and the tallies of, you know, captured tanks and planes or destroyed numbers in these areas and prisoners of war into the millions. It seems to tell its own story. It's a self-evident success. But I think that the problem here is one has to look at how do we understand all of this information? And one of the key things for the Soviets is, yeah, they're losing a whole lot. 
actually the size of the Red Army over 1941 is getting bigger. Now, size doesn't just mean quality, but it's still a problem that the Germans have to deal with. And what did we say 10 minutes ago? The German Barbarossa plan is predicated on being a short war. And not only are they not destroying the Red Army, the Red Army is getting bigger. So force mobilization is uh, incredibly important to the success of the Soviet army. Um, and the same thing is not true of the Germans. They invade with a, we were saying it before, three million men uh, plus army. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of allies as well as that. I mean, the Finns have about 400,000 plus. The Romanians have about 300,000. There's Hungarians, there's, there's Italians who will come. So there's a huge amount of uh, forces invading. But I think what needs to be understood in terms of the German side is we shouldn't just have these big figures that sound like, wow, it's this incredible army that's all motorized. That's the propaganda. That's what people see in those German films. You know, it's always moving tanks and so on. The reality of Barbarossa is that's an elite small core. That's 30 divisions of the 150 divisions because those are the motorized and panzer divisions. Everything else is marching infantry. There are 600,000 horses in this German army marching east and they don't move at the same speed. So these two armies have a big problem in those initial weeks. One of them is surging out ahead, doing all of the so-called blitzkrieg. They're the ones that are driving in and encircling these armies. And in some ways, even the names of the battles are a, are a misnomer. We talk about the Battle of Minsk and the Battle of uh, you know, Smolensk and the Battle of Kiev. It makes it sound like, oh, that's happening at that city. And actually, the better name for these things is the Battle of Belarus. That's Minsk, because that's basically what's happening. Panzer Groups uh, 3 and Panzer Group 2 are encircling, if you look on the European map, the city, uh, the, the, the nation of Belarus, that's what this encirclement is. That's an enormous distance and it's costly because it's costly for these panzer groups with 1930s technology to move over very bad roads at constant speed and there's all this dust on the roads that has an effect on these things. So the, the decline in German motorization and everything that makes the panzer division so important, that's taking place disproportionate to the absolute number of destroyed vehicles. So we'd kind of think, well, how many of them actually got destroyed? Actually, very few. But if you look at the fallout rates, just because of driving on these roads and, and being active, you know, 20 hours a day, that's much, much higher. In fact, I even remember one statistic. The 7th Panzer Division has lost 75% of its Mark IV tanks in the first 10 days of the campaign. That's not to say that they're destroyed. Uh, so they're not marked as destroyed, but they don't function. And then you have to ask secondary questions. How do you repair this stuff in the field? Well, the Germans typically would send that stuff back to the factories. That's not realistic. The Barbarossa timetable does not allow for that. So there's all these hybrid solutions in the field and do they get them going again? Yes, some of them, definitely. But they start cannibalizing vehicles to make others work. It's a wasting asset. And by the time you get weeks or, or two or three months into this campaign, the German army is still the German army. It's still a formidable force. And yes, it's still driving forward. But if the absolute condition for 1941 is Germany must end this war, there is no contingency for not ending it. This is a high resource uh, war of millions of men for which the German industry really isn't built to sustain because they're changing over to fight you know, a naval war and an air war. They're going to have to continue to supply a land war and they're not going to have the workers to do it. This is a real problem for Germany. You don't see it because everyone's looking at, well, who's driving forward? Who's attacking? Who's winning the Battle of Vyazma in October? Yeah, it's the Germans. But the inability to win and the constant losses, Germans lose uh, 68,000 dead in the month of July. That's a phenomenal loss. 
And that is not for a relatively small population base relative to the number of allies they're fighting, uh, enemies they're fighting. Um, you know, that, that's not sustainable. So we have to start looking at some of these secondary factors in order to, to understand exactly what's going on. We shouldn't be in some ways deceived by the simple fact that there's a lot of propaganda and they're driving forward and we talk about, you know, wow, these Blitzkrieg German armies and so on. And oh, the big, the big disaster at Stalingrad some 18 months down the track. No, Barbarossa was supposed to be a short six to 10 week operation. And when that doesn't happen, that's a problem. That is a, I'd even argue, a, a disastrous problem for the German war effort. Um, and again, we can probably unpack that in more questions, but I'll leave it at that. Do you know what? I can already see this being repeated for our last question about the failure, because um, I'm assuming, I'm assuming those were some of the reasons why it failed. But don't answer mm -hmm. that just yet, because I know we can get into a whole different other tangent, and we can do that right at the end. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, but tell us about the beginning of it all, the first day of Barbarossa. Oh, it's, uh, just for anyone out there who's probably thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting, because I read that and thought to myself, yeah, that's a, that's a really good idea, this, this, you know, what happens initially. I mean, Barbarossa is so huge, we don't really ever reduce it to a day, but there's a guy recently named Craig Luther who wrote a book called, I think it's called The First Day, The First Day on the Eastern Front. Ah, there you go, it tells you what it's all about. But he does this, he kind of goes through all the various, you know, there's a lot of units to go through and looks at the experience. And I guess if you summarize what picture is built in my mind from all of that is, we tend to talk in generic terms. We say, oh, this was the campaign or this was the war in the East. And I guess when I got to the end of his book, I realized, you know, on, on just one day, you begin to appreciate how long the front is. So you see different topography, different climate, different, you know, conditions that they're talking about. And you also see how varied the war is. Some of these guys are coming up against Soviet units that are literally fighting to the absolute death with no real chance of, you know, it's not like they've been encircled and, and then maybe some chance of breaking out. Now, these guys are going to get killed if they keep to, keep resisting. And even the Germans are musing in their own writings on this first day, my God, these guys are fighting like demons. And yet that's not everywhere the same story. In other instances, men are freely giving up. I mean, part of the analysis beyond just Luther's book is that, you know, the Soviet army, again, we talk about this sort of monolithic as a red army, but actually, of course, if you break up the constituent units, if they were raised from Ukraine or from Baltic states, you're going to get very different motivations and different kinds of soldiers. And that seems to be the early story. You do start to see this in those early weeks. You, you get sometimes quite varied responses, but that does change as we get into the autumn there's much less of this. There's, there's far less Soviet units than are likely to give up. And I think the analysis that's been done around why is that the case, it, it begins to speak to the idea of this being a war of annihilation. Um, Soviet propaganda is putting that out. That doesn't mean that Soviet civilians or Soviet Red Army soldiers necessarily believe it. They don't necessarily believe things just because the state tells them. They know that they get told certain things. But I think what the analysis tells us is men in these um, conditions m m determine what's real and what's not real based on what their colleagues tell them. So if, if someone's broken back into the lines or if, if people who've been under German occupation, and we're talking now by the autumn or so, filter back through the lines and they tell stories of terrible atrocities and all kinds of you know, horrific things that the Germans engaged in, not the least of which the Holocaust, that will steal your, your sort of backbone to resist or at least not surrender and, and, and you know, 
from everything we now know, that makes sense. I mean, a huge number of the Soviet prisoners of war who were captured in 1941 don't survive uh, even into 1942 because of the conditions of those camps. Um, so in part, the War of Annihilation, I guess, is a direct um, act to kill people, i.e. when you look at anti-partisan warfare or you look at the Commissar Order or you look at, you know, the mass shooting of Jews and so on or anyone dubbed a resistor. And then there's a whole secondary element to that. There's an indirect total, like, you know, how does the German army, where does it get its food from? They recognise that how, how um, sort of tenuous the supply lines are. So it's all prioritised for ammunition and for fuel. Where do the soldiers get their food from? Well, that's all planned. You're just going to take it off the people. This is not a rich part of the world. And you can imagine if millions of men have invaded the country and there's constant units flowing through given villages and the first units might well get something. By the time the 17th group of men start passing through and the people say, I haven't got anything anymore, of course they're keeping stuff. They know what the winter's going to be like. They have to. German soldiers start tearing apart their, their houses to get stuff and they, and they find stuff. What are these people supposed to survive on? And I think that's a secondary cause of a, of a tremendous amount of, um, of suffering and death in, amongst the Soviet population. It isn't always discussed. In fact, recently a guy named Alex J.K. and I, we wrote a sort of a, an article on this, not that I want to get into literature or something, but, but talking about the fact that we're so, there's so much uh, direct killing, it's, it's a, it, the war of annihilation is very real, but sometimes those secondary factors aren't emphasised as much, yet they have a huge impact. If you have a lot of people who obviously don't have food, not only is there malnutrition and death, but it also facilitates huge numbers of people dying from diseases because they're weaker and and the same process continues through the year. If you take their, their warm clothing when the German army doesn't have any, what happens to the people? And then when it gets really cold and you can't sleep outside and you take over their houses, what happens to these people? It's not the act itself with the intention of killing the people, but that can very quickly become the result, even if that wasn't intended necessarily. And I think all of this needs to be considered in amongst the military campaign, because the German army at the end of the day is not that different from the, the Waffen SS and, 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 and the Einsatz group and all the rest of it. They contribute to no small extent to the horrendous losses that the Soviet Union have in this war. And that's starting as soon as 1941. Isn't that the scorched earth? Uh, sorry, the scorched earth policy. Yes, certainly. I mean, the scorched earth policies are. Uh, do you mean from the Soviet side or the German side? From the from the Soviet side, because as you mentioned, the, the Germans are coming and taking. So, did yeah. the Soviets retaliate the other way and start the scorched? I mean, could you tell us? Uh, well, I've mentioned it, but can you tell our viewers and listeners what is the scorched? Scorched. Oh my gosh, I can't talk to you. Scorched earth policy. Yeah. No. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's happening on both sides. I mean, I think the military calculus from the Soviet side is, is also a, a ruthless one, no question. And I guess, you know, people can say, and I know there's a, a big movement in Russia these days. I mean, it's amazing how Stalin's being rehabilitated. It's seemingly anything the guy did, as horrendous as some of those things were, you know, you can justify it now because, well, you know, didn't he beat the Nazis? And, and therefore, to what extent is the, the brutal process of industrialization always forgiven because, well, didn't he uh, fight Hitler? I think the problem with that narrative is Hitler, Stalin doesn't know in the 1920s or certainly in the 1930s what's coming. He didn't have pre-science. He didn't know this is all going to happen. And, you know, in the war itself, there's a lot of Soviet policies that you look at and say, wow, that is horrendous what they're able to do. In context, again, of this war of annihilation, I guess there's an argument around, well, to what extent was that necessary? 
But part of that is this scorched earth policy. As they're moving back through, they are destroying infrastructure. In some instances, I wouldn't want to make a blanket statement, but in some instances, that stuff is really important, particularly things like railroads. Um, the Germans are invading and they have this idea, well, they know there's a different gauge in the east, but it's simple. All you have to do is knock the pins up because it's a wider track. They build bigger locomotives and all the rest of it. So we just knock the pins up, push the, the rails closer together, knock them back down again, and hey, Presto, German trains run on Soviet lines and this way we can supply our army. The railroad conversion groups that are part of the German army, they're not equipped for heavy rebuilding work, right? They don't have the, the heavy lifting. They haven't got the timetable for this. This is, a, again, a Blitzkrieg-style operation. And the Soviets, because they destroy, no, to no small extent, rail infrastructure, and partly that's also, we shouldn't put it all in Soviets, partly that's also the Luftwaffe. They are very effective at destroying these things. And sometimes it's one of these misconnects, uh, sorry, disconnects between the various armies because uh, the railroad troops are saying, well, how come this is all Luftwaffe? Why did we target this? We've got to build it again. And that slows the process because if your only other option of sustaining operations into the East is is trucks. Trucks are also a wasting asset, partly because they're losing them. Uh, they're not replacing them, they're losing them. Sometimes capturing Soviet models, no question, but a, 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 your railhead is where the bulk of the supplies will come. And a truck can be very effective over short distances if it's supplying the front armies. But the moment it has to start moving, and they are moving up to hundreds of kilometres of distance, then the truck load itself is in part just to sustain the movement of the truck. It's because it needs to carry its own fuel. It needs to service, it, 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 you know, the, 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 the men along the way. And by the time it gets to the front, there's not much left. Um, and so then it has to drive all the way back again with enough fuel to get back there. And, and, and so you start to see how the wasting asset takes place. In other words, you need those railheads to keep extending. And that's a huge problem. So in part, the Soviets targeting their own infrastructure is good. In other instances, though, that same policy applies to burning civilian homes. That would have the same effect of what I was just saying before, only it's the Soviets doing it, right? It's ruthless, um, but then welcome to the Soviet um, regime. And I'd say the other really uh, just shocking example, I remember reading there's a, a wonderful German historian, Adrian Wettstein, who does uh, really the best work on, on Stadtkampf, so city fighting on the Eastern Front. And everyone probably thinks, oh, that's all Stalingrad. But there are instances much earlier in the war as well. So Dnepropetrovsk uh, in the Ukraine is a, is a, is a city where they, they fight really in the city for, for weeks and weeks. And it's interesting how the Soviets will leave the population. In fact, if I'm remembering, it's been some years since I've read it, but uh, they, they, they don't allow them out. They're not allowed out. And why? Because there's a tactical advantage. If there's Soviet people all around the, the, the city, as the Germans are fighting from house to house, and of course, local intelligence is key here, well, the Red Army can talk to them and they can say, well, there's three Germans that went down there and there's some in the cellar over there. And if you just go around there, you can actually, there's a, there's a hole in that roof. You can climb through and do X, Y, Z. And you can start to see that that, that matters. Of course, what are the losses for these Soviet people in this kind? What government would do that? But then, huh, welcome to Stalin's Soviet Union. I don't think he bats an eye. And it's the treatment of the Red Army as well. We, we know these things at the same time. Yeah, it underlines your point, Alina, that, uh, you know, scorched earth. It sounds like a policy. It's much more brutal than, than, than that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How many prisoners are we looking at? so far as the Soviets are concerned. It must have been colossal, uh, the log- just the logistics and the scale of it, but look, trying to keep them alive, uh, there's a, their chances can't have been good for being cared for properly. Yeah, in the course of 1941, uh, it, you know, the numbers are always a bit debated um, exactly what counts as a prisoner of war because some of the you know, scratch units that are sent to the front, uh, you know, are they Red Army? Um, and, and how are the, the counting of the German that people have debated, you know, they say 650,000 are captured at the Battle of Kiev. How did they come to that number? Is that, was that the correct number? But over 3 million, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is, fascinating, God, that's maybe not the right word, but it is fascinating, it's also horrific, that by February of 42, some 60% of that figure are dead. Um, and, you know, it's... It's partly that, yes, upon capture, there are German soldiers who will shoot, you know, this is part of the brutalisation, who will shoot their prisoners and there's then marching columns and anyone who, you know, drops out and can't keep up. And, you know, keep in mind, these guys are sometimes exhausted by the time they're captured, if not wounded as well, they can't keep up. They're not, they're not provided with, with wheelchairs or anything. So a lot of these people are being shot, but no, by no means, when we're talking three million, do most of them end up dying as a result of a, a German necessarily shooting them? It's the conditions that they then encounter, which I would say, you know, it's 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 these camps, and even the camps, the idea you probably get a picture in your head of that there's some sort of infrastructure there, and there just isn't. These are greenfield sites, and they're they're surrounded by barbed wire. And my goodness, you have to read the the accounts uh, of how the administration functions or probably better said doesn't function uh, to understand just exactly why so many of them die. It'd be the same as I was saying before. It's not that the German army purposefully want to kill them. There were instances, as I've just cited, where they are purposefully killing them. But when you're talking these kinds of numbers, it's largely resulting from not allowing these men the basics to survive. So you put them on these greenfield sites, what's immediately going to be happening? If there's no toiletries, well, they're going to be getting diseases. And of course they are. And of course, if they're not being fed and there's very seldom enough food for them to survive, so they're also becoming malnourished, that means that, they're, uh, that the diseases will circulate and be more deadly much quicker. And of course, when the weather starts to change, how are they protected from the elements? And, and when it gets so cold, they haven't got winter uniforms. And even when they do have winter uniforms, the reality is you can't stay outside at night and, and you can't be out there for days, and especially when it's raining in October, and think that you're going to survive this. So you see horrendous losses. I even remember reading about one camp, I think, in Holla in Poland, and it had a, a, a number of its height of 100,000. And they closed the camp when? When there was simply no one left alive there. 
And if you read things like that, it's very easy to become detached. You think about that number, 100,000 people, and, and it's not something that, you know, will have a book written on it. It's, it's just one more statistic. But my God, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of what we're talking about before the interview. It's easy to become sort of desensitized to the numbers. At the same time, maybe that's the whole point. Maybe that's why we need to emphasize, God, that's 100,000 people. And what was the figure? Three million in total. And it's more than 1.5 are dead by February of 42. Um, I think it just says so much about the kind of war that's being waged here, the ideological element. Maybe that's the, the, the problem of my earlier answer, not emphasizing more that the rationale here, while strategic initially, becomes very ideological and how Hitler frames this war. And the fact that that is internalized by not just, of course, Einsatzgruppen, that's what you would expect. That's those kinds of guys. They, of course, are ideological. They belong to the SD, sub-element of the SS. But it's interesting to look at the Wehrmacht. The Wehrmacht are in charge of these camps. The Wehrmacht are perpetrating so much of this criminality. And they're the overwhelming bulk of representation in the East by a massive factor. The Einsatzgruppen have 3,000 men. The German Wehrmacht have more than 3 million. And these crimes are not happening from a select few. They're happening from the overwhelming bulk of German behavior. Do you know what? I, I, it really annoys me when people say to me, oh, um, the Einsatzgruppen, they had no choice. They, they, they were forced, even if they don't mention Isaac's group, you know, that the Germans were forced to do this. I mean, how many people have really, truly read Christopher Browning's Battalion 101? I mean, that will give you everything. And like you just said, it was the Wehrmacht yeah. as well. It wasn't just Isaac's group. It wasn't just um, select killing squads. These were also the Wehrmacht committing these crimes against people. I mean, but I, you've just mentioned Isaac's group, and, and I've mentioned Isaac's group, and I just want to really briefly touch on this for our listeners who don't know who Isaac's group was and what their purpose actually was coming on behind the Wehrmacht and what they actually did. Yeah, no, that's uh, it is an important point, and it's good that you catch me on things like that because it's very easy. It's one of the things I love about teaching students is, you know, for all the people complain, oh, students today don't read enough, don't, but it's always when they ask questions that sometimes are elementary that I think, yeah, that's on me. I need to remember that, uh, you know, not everyone knows that stuff. So the Einsatzgruppen, as I say, they're a, a sub-element basically of the SS, um, and initially their mandate is not just to go into the Soviet Union and, and kill Jews. That seems to come, there's a bit of a debate about exactly when the orders come through. They're passed on orally, at least we don't have documents saying from Hitler they will now change policy. But it starts to begin in late July. It's very clear that by August there are mass killings taking place throughout the Soviet Union. So the Einsatzgruppen, there are four of them. They basically spread um, along the Eastern Front. And uh, they, they break up into, um, you know, sort of smaller units. And their mandate is to initially target anyone who is an agitator, anyone who is seen to be um, you know, opposing German occupation. But as I say, their, their mandate becomes very clear that they become, um, you know, clearly targeting Soviet Jews. Uh, and they keep very detailed records of it. Um, I mean, you get lists of... Uh, you know, how many Jews, males, females, children were killed in any given town, uh, town or, or, or village by the day. It, it is, uh, you know, in context of everything we've just said, not to repeat it all, but it is, 
it is horrendous. And I think while a lot of time, and it's really good that you mentioned Christopher Browning because he has this foundational sort of work that shows just how this can function. And he's talking about police battalions, which is almost more remarkable because I think part of the story there is these guys weren't necessarily purposefully chosen for this. They're police who have been put into a battalion and then, wow, they're still capable of doing this. And I think I guess the cautionary tale there is, is how much you know, so-called ordinary men can be inducted into a process of even mass killing and, and on some level go along with it. And I think that's part of what we see when we talk about those groups. So the Einsatzgruppen, they seem, they seem to be special. But if you ever ask the question, where do the Einsatzgruppen actually get the bullets, the, the, the fuel, the, the, the resourcing? Aren't those guys having to liaise with German officers, even German officers that we know and we write about? And sometimes because we separate War of Annihilation and operations, at least for about 50 years after the war, those areas were very separate. People would write about their military uh, histories of German operations, and you would start to see people fall into, and I think largely because they didn't understand that War of Annihilation, language that you wouldn't find amiss when you're writing about Montgomery or you're writing about Patton or you're writing about Eisenhower. And they would say very positive things about these German generals. People had their favorite German generals and they would talk about them, oh, wonderful, innovative, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. If you knew what German historians to no small extent have worked on, and there's been a huge amount of work in the last 20, 30 years, but particularly in German, uh, there's some great stuff in English as well, but most of this historiography is coming out of, uh, of Germany. Germany is not sweeping its past under the rug by any means. They deal with it. And that's actually mostly, when you find people who work on the Wehrmacht, they're mostly engaged in these kinds of questions to, 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 the, to the war of annihilation. They're not necessarily writing operational histories as we tend to do in the Anglo-American world, but it's not possible to be uh, someone who works, I think, exclusively in, 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 in one of those two fields. That's so clearly linked because the Einsatzgruppen are getting all their support from uh, from the German Wehrmacht. And these guys, these commanders, people like Herpener and so on, he's a Panzer Group commander, you know, he has an excellent relationship with his uh, Einsatzgruppen commander. It's extraordinary to think he knew what they were engaged in. There's no fudging it there, and he's okay with it. Now, I guess the question is, and this is where the next stage of the historiography is going, is to what extent and, and how far down that, that pyramid of German command, to what extent did you know, middle rank German soldier, uh, German officers know about this and uh, did they acquiesce in this kind of um, uh, behaviour? I think largely the, the, the evidence at this point suggests a frightening amount. I mean, no German divisional commander, I think could, it could be said, didn't know. That's 150 men right there. In fact, there'd be more than that because some of them change over 1941. There'd be 40, I think, three, three core commanders. They knew X number of army commanders and that army group commanders. We've already just named 250 senior German commanders, the most senior. How many of them resigned in disgust at the good name of the German army being associated with mass murder? All of zero. That says a hell of a lot. I would love to do a podcast on Einsatzgruppen for me. It's, it is such an interesting topic and we can talk in so much more detail in what they did because very few people know that um, they didn't just go and kill Jews. They killed Poles. They killed priests they mm. killed russians gypsies you know like you said anybody who opposed the the german regime and it's it's horrific and yeah. we deserve to know more about it yeah this is a podcast about bible russia so put pin in that because we will do it 
I'm part of the problem. Let's be honest. These answers go longer than they should, but go ahead. It's fine. It's fine. I'm, uh, do you know what? We've got a lot of military people who love to listen, so we're fine. We're good. Let's go to mid-July. The Germans have advanced 400 miles. What goes wrong? Oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a nice way of framing it, actually. What does go wrong? Because I think past histories have assumed, well, at, by that exact point you mentioned, where in mid-July, they've just seized Smolensk. If you take the German starting position to Smolensk, that's two-thirds of the way to Moscow. And I don't mind saying, when I read my very first histories of this, and I was, you know, kind of fascinated teenager with this stuff, and then I remember reading that and thinking, on the 16th of July, Germans took Smolensk? How could that be? If they took you know, three quarters of the, sorry, two thirds of the distance to Moscow in the first three weeks of the campaign, how is it they can't get to Moscow in, still in early December? Why, why did they stop? And that was a, the analysis earlier that, you know, oh, that Hitler stops the tanks and all the rest of it. It's not true at all. Um, so what has gone wrong? First of all, we need to look at uh, these operational problems. We need to look at what, does, what drives a panzer group forward and we need fuel for that. They need ammunition to fight. If this very small elite has, uh, uh, has shot out ahead of the German army, by the time they're seizing Smolensk, they are 300 kilometers ahead of the nearest possible German infantry because that's marching. Now, what I said before when I was talking about the, the mobilization base, the, the Soviet um, uh, uh, military system is echelon. So there's a sort of a front line, and this is where the, the, the armies that they're initially encircling at the Battle of Minsk are. Then there's a sort of secondary line, which is three, four hundred uh, kilometers back behind the line, and they're marshalling and raising forces there. But then there's a third echelon behind that, and again, they're forming up new armies here. So as this Battle of Smolensk take, takes place, and it's a little hard without any maps or any visuals for you, but imagine there's an encirclement battle taking place with a small number of German vi uh, uh, divisions enacting this encirclement. There are now Soviet forces inside the pocket, but because of the echelon system, they've got forces also outside the pocket that are attacking into it to try and relieve them. And Guderian and Hort, these two panzer group commanders, are under extreme pressure. Their armies, are, or their armies, their, their, their divisions are, are branched out over a very, very long area and they're fighting internally and externally in their, um, in their encirclement and they can't link. The link actually never gets linked up for, it's, uh, it's quite the battle, right through to the end of July before they can link. And there's casualties for this. What did I say before? There were uh, 68,000 German deaths in July of 1941. The, the question is, where are these deaths? If you take that as a, as, a, as, a, as a part of a three million man army, it sounds like, well, relative to the Soviets, they're not suffering that badly. But if you again understand how this German Bewegungskrieg, the war of movement, how that's being fought, what's that predicated on? It's very much these panzer groups. So the losses are taking place materially in order to enact these because of the movement, as I was talking about before, but also these very highly trained, these are specialist men, these guys who know how to operate uh, this, this sort of blitzkrieg movement. These are the guys that are being thinned out early. That's where the, the casualties are heaviest. And this is what you're going to then require once the Smolensk battle is ended. So it's uh, the, yeah, I think they announced victory on the 8th of August, 1941. I have to check that, but I'm pretty sure that's the date. So they've won. It looks great. Why don't they just drive on toward Moscow? Yeah, because Guderian 
and Hort, when they get to meet with Hitler uh, in um, in early August, uh, what are they being asked for? They're not they're not they're not saying right. We just got to keep driving on. They want new engines. They recognise how many of their 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 tanks simply. Um, are overwhelmed. They've got 1930s dust filters, huge amounts of dust. It's very fine dust. It gets into the air filters. What do they do to fix the problem in the early days and weeks? They're just putting oil through the engines, tons of oil to try and wash it out. But of course, you can't get sand out of an engine. That's not really an effective way to do it. It means your oil consumption goes way up. And this is a short-term fix. But after weeks and weeks of this, especially when you're confronting, we're going to have hundreds of kilometers more to not just get to Moscow, but they want to encircle Moscow. It means you've got to go even further. That's a real ask. Materially, that's an ask. There's a question about how do you resource this? Alina just said it, we're 640 kilometers into the Soviet Union and you've been living hand to mouth to get that far. You're gonna to have to build up your supplies. Oh yeah, that also prefaces the fact that their rail network to do that isn't built. And then there's another strategic problem. So there's practical problems about continuing to Moscow, but there's a strategic problem as well. It's a debate going on in July and into August between the OKH, the High Command of the German Army, that's this Helder guy, as well as the Commander of Army Group Center, a guy named Bock. The Panzer Group commanders are initially in favor of, uh, of Bock and, and Helder, saying we need to go on to Moscow. But Hitler's convinced, no, these, the Eastern Front has not moved as an even sort of force across the East. The uh, Army Group Center has protruded deep into the Soviet Union and is way ahead of Army Group South. They've been held up. They faced more Soviet opposition. There were more um, uh, Soviet mechanized forces in the South. So they haven't had the same um, uh, speed of advance. And so there's a possible solution here. If Guderian was to strike south into the central Ukraine, he would be driving into the rear of the Soviet Southwestern Front, as it's referred to. Now, that's a front. It's kind of like an army group, which means is the potential to destroy a huge amount of Soviet manpower. Make a long story short, what do they do? Yes, they go for this option, and that is the Battle of Kiev. That's why you have these catastrophic Soviet losses. Um, but uh, that's not because, and I would be very cautious in, 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 in people often say, oh, but they could have just driven on Moscow. Nope. If you look at the German Army Group Center files, there's two other things going on in that front. One is they're very clear about building up supplies for what becomes Operation Typhoon. And the other thing is, and again, it's something you don't see because people don't write about this stuff, but the Ninth Army, which is not an area people are interested in because people want to follow the action of where there's movement, but the Ninth Army, which is holding a huge part of Army Group Center's front, is actually straining just to hold the front. There are constant Soviet offensives all through 1941. We don't see them because we don't really see the front move. That's not to say they're not happening. And Ninth Army is under huge pressure just trying to hold the front, and they've lost the second panzer group down in the Ukraine and parts of Hort's panzer group has been devoted to the north and the rest of Hort's panzer group is just driving around trying to plug gaps in the line and sustain the front where it is. Forget trying to drive on Moscow. They need to build those resources. They need to end the battle in the south and then they can uh, continue that. And the last thing I'd say on that, if you're wondering about, oh, I don't know about this, David. Yeah, imagine trying to drive to Moscow in July of 1941, first of all, without the supplies. But if you've got the Soviet Southwestern Front along that long and ever extending hundreds of kilometers southern flank, the danger for German forces being cut off or at least overextended because they're gonna to have to leave forces on that, love and that southern flank is all the more dangerous. So I am no believer in uh, some quick drive on Moscow, not for practical reasons, but also for strategic reasons. Um, 
but we don't have enough time today. But no, we don't. We are That's definitely going to do this. No, we are coming back and we are doing Kiev. We are coming back. We are doing the Battle for Moscow. Um, but do you know what? Let's let's sum it up with the advance on Leningrad, and then the advance on Moscow. Yeah, I think um, you know, in some ways, maybe to do that rather quickly. A lot of the sim- the factors you see in the battles I've been describing are present in these as well. There are differences. I mean, in driving up to Leningrad is a very good question to ask about why would you send motorized uh, and panzer forces into an area which is, you know, there's a lot of marshes up there. And, you know, we have to understand as well that the Soviet Union is, is, is you know, sorry, Russia today is not the Soviet Union of back then. You, you start to see maps from back then. You realise how poor the infrastructure was, how few bridges there were, how bad the roads were, and and, and that has a real impact on movement. So Leningrad isn't um, uh, really cut off until September. But again, that's a big difference between seizing Leningrad, right? There's still defenders and they're, um, and, 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 you know, the, the Germans have no real chance of doing this. And indeed, that's also because they're, for the drive on Moscow, diverting major resources from the Army Group North to Army Group Centre. So the, the, the fourth panzer group, uh, Hoopener's panzer group, the guy I was talking about before, he's diverted to the south. And all of this will be used for um, uh, Operation Typhoon. That is the supposedly the, the final drive on Moscow, which... Um, yeah, is, is a sort of an epic in and of itself. Um, there's going to be initial success. They encircle at Vyazma and Bransk, a huge number of Soviet forces, but they are not able to uh, engage in the exploitation. Two reasons for that, or probably three. One is the, the common one, is the mud. Uh, that's well known. The second thing is, if there hadn't been any mud, how much fuel is there? There is not enough fuel to drive them forward. People have disputed that. I remember someone wrote, I don't do a lot of internet, but um, someone wrote on the internet, oh, that's not true. I've seen the files. They have X number of tons of fuel and that is enough to get 300 kilometers. And I thought to myself, oh yeah, that's, I get what, why the guy would say that. What he fails to understand is that's not in practical terms what happens. Nobody gets into a tank and just drives to Moscow. Vehicles, <laughs> you know, on a battlefield Sorry. are maneuvering and constantly going, no, what's out they get cold here they go there and, and and trucks go to the front back to the front back they have to take you know secondary routes and they get lost and they so it's not efficient so the the amount of fuel versus how much it takes to get 300 kilometers is not an analogy you can really use and especially since most of the movement is in low gears so they're driving very slowly and you know low gears consume more fuel um they often have to do things that seem crazy to us but because it's so cold and the and the engines seize up when it's cold so they run the engines at night even when they're sleeping of course that's consuming fuel it's the same for the tanks they're very fuel intensive so all these problems that uh, people perhaps don't think about but that was a nice plug Lena. thank you very much because yes if you do read my book some people would say i'm verbose and write too much but i always say hey if we started with this idea of scale matters then when people write whole books on north african battles and so they should those are interesting and worthwhile but if people are writing whole books on what I would say are relatively small battles, then yeah, if I take a, a book to write about a month on the Eastern Front, well, actually, we're talking about millions of men fighting and, and sometimes dying. Battle of Kiev is one million men being wiped off the Soviet register. That is phenomenal. And yeah, it's worth a book. We so need to get you back again. Um, tell us, I'm really interested about this new book you've been working on. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, towards the end of the year, I've got a book coming with, uh, I mentioned him before, Craig uh, Luther. We've basically decided to put together a whole um, collection of German letters. There's only a few books in English where you find a German soldier's letters from the Eastern Front. And we were talking about this and then 
realize that there's, there's two archives that are really good in Germany for field post and, and what they've got there. And then we thought, wouldn't it be fascinating to, to put a book together, which is essentially letting the German soldier tell the story. So we've got, I think, just over 200 different soldiers and they're in all parts of the front. They have all different kinds of roles, artillery, there's some pilots, there's tank people, infantry people, all these kind of people. And they basically write about, you know, obviously all aspects of the war, but we were particularly interested in capturing, you know, obviously combat um, and, and the genocide. There's, there's two wars going on here. What do they write about that? What do they write about ideology? How do they understand the war? But also, really interestingly, we were both keen on everyday experience. So, you know, what do they do in their bunkers? What, what do they think about? What do they talk about? What do they, what, you know, what do they eat? And, and so all that, we were trying to capture that as well. And luckily, our publisher kept extending the number of words as uh, we said, no, 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 we found more letters and it's just too good. We can't cut it down. In fact, we need more. And ultimately, I think they went with 170,000 words. So it'll be a sizable book. And, you know, I have to say, even though, of course, I'm an advocate for that, that, that book, I, I, when, I, when I first read it, after collecting tons and tons of letters and putting them in there, and there is a question in the back of your mind, how will, the, will this thing read? Will this read like a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of disparate, separate experiences? But what you start to get, and it's chronologically organized, we do sort of 1941, there's, 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 there's so much material anyway, we wanted to leave it at 1941. Uh, you get this really multifaceted view, every letter, and it's not every letter, sorry, it's not every part of every letter, we just uh, take out the parts that we think are interesting, but you can read for you know two or three pages on one guy's letter, so you get a sense. And some of them come back again and again and again, so you start to follow individuals through the campaign. It's even for someone like myself who gets desensitized to that story, but it's a really interesting way to explore it all because it's a very bottom-up perspective. It's very gritty. It's very harrowing, but it's also, I think, yeah, as you say, Alina, it's kind of. Um, you know, it's where you can, I think, best identify. A lot of the stuff I say is top-down history, documents and stuff like that can start to sound removed from the everyday lived experience. And that's very much what that book was going to be. So there's my pitch. There you go, guys. Make sure when it's out, go out and buy it because I know I definitely will be. So, David, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about Operation Barbarossa, all the details that we could probably talk about for hours. Oh, always a pleasure. Great to be on History Hack. Thank you so much. Thanks. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 